understand how important this is to God. You want to know what your duty to God is? Here it is. Love God with all your heart and love other people as you love yourself. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new 10-part series titled The One Another's. Have you ever thought about what the Bible means when it commands believers to love one another? Well, throughout this new series, we'll examine what Scripture reveals to us about how God commands us to love one another. You'll learn the priority of loving one another, the purpose of loving one another, and finally, the path to loving one another. Today, Tom opens up Matthew chapter 22 as he begins to look at the two greatest commandments, to love God and love others. And Tom, loving others is extremely important, but often difficult, isn't it? That's right. You know, it's extremely important because, as we'll learn today, it really is the motivation for the rest of the one another's of the New Testament. We are commanded to love one another. You know, it's interesting that the focus of that isn't on loving people outside of our church family, although certainly we're commanded to do so. We're commanded to love our enemies. So there's nobody who's outside the scope of the biblical commands to love. But, but the focus today and the focus really of the New Testament is on loving one another. That is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ because that, Jesus said, is how other people in our world see that we really belong to Jesus Christ. So really nothing is more important in terms of our human relationships than what we're gonna learn today. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher on The Word Unleashed. Alan Bloom writes this, isolation a sense of lack of profound contact with other human beings seems to be the disease of our times. We are lonely while living in society with all the social needs for others, yet unable to satisfy them. You can see this problem, this encouragement to isolation in many different ways in the culture. Consider, for example, even the architecture of our homes. When you pull through some small rural towns, you see lots of old homes with porches. Sheila and I were struck with that as we were driving back even the last time we went to Mobile, driving through some small Alabama towns, and people are out sitting on their porches. Now, that can also be a little frightening and disconcerting as well, but they're out visiting and enjoying each other, and they're, they'll visit with anybody who happens to come by. There's a connection we, on the other hand, pull straight into our garages and walk into our homes. Sheila and I have often talked that we have to work to build any sort of rapport or friendship with our neighbors who live on our cul-de-sac because we all drive into our garages and walk into our houses. We live in isolation very easily. Take technology, for example. There are cell phones which are supposedly supposed to bring us closer together but in reality, they tend to isolate us from everyone but our own little tight circle. In fact, I've read an article recently about some college students. This is becoming an increasing problem for students who go off to college. They take their cell phones with them. 
and they will use those cell phones to stay in contact with family, which is a good thing. I'm not criticizing that, parents. And with all their old high school friends, and so they can be in the middle of a huge campus, crowded with people, and not connect with a single one of them. There's television. I cannot believe it, but it's constantly asserted, so I'm assuming it's true, that the average American watches a mind-numbing six hours of television a day. And then there are hundreds of movies and videos. Folks, I hate to tell you this, but it is hard. In fact, it is impossible to build relationships with other people when you're both silent watching a movie. You can sit next to each other, but you can't build a relationship. There's the internet growing number of articles that describe the isolation from real relationships that the internet tends to produce, even among a husband and a wife. A husband can spend hours reading and, and responding to his favorite blogs and ignore the people in his own household. And sadly, it gives the illusion of relationship, but without any of the reality. Such isolation as is so common in our culture, runs contrary to the spirit of the New Testament. And it's in direct opposition to the New Testament view of life in the church. Images like a family, a flock, and Paul's favorite, a body. All of those images picture an interdependence and relationship that unfortunately is foreign to many Christians. When you think about those pictures of the church, it shouldn't surprise us that the New Testament has so much to say about our responsibility to each other. The Lord wants us to understand that we have a responsibility to the people around us. Look around you. Before God, you have a responsibility to these people. Why is that? Why is relationship so important? Well, there are many reasons, but personally, I think the most compelling reason is that relationship, listen carefully, relationship is a part of the residual image of God in us. Think about it for a moment. There has existed within our God, within the Trinity, relationship for all eternity. And there always will exist relationship. And so there's a sense in which we can say that to fail to properly relate to one another is to sin against the very character of our God. To imagine that we can live as an island, that we can live in isolation from others, is to sin against our creator, in how he made us as a reflection of himself. In fact, I would go as far as to say that to shirk that responsibility, to isolate ourselves, is part of the essence of sin. You see this attitude raise its head very shortly after sin entered the world. You remember that after creation, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect relationship with each other. They were absolutely connected at the most intimate level. There was no strife, there was no conflict, because both of them were completely perfect. And they had perfect relationship with God. You remember they walked with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself in the garden in the cool of the day. There was a spirit between Adam and Eve of interdependence. But then they sinned and they plunged the entire human race into sin with them. And what happens? What's the very first thing that happens? They hide themselves from God. 
And then they start blaming each other for the situation in which they find themselves. And then in chapter 4, the situation gets even worse because they have Cain. And Cain, their oldest, ends up killing their youngest. Perhaps the most telling and insightful comment into human personality and character Cain makes in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. You remember God comes to Cain and he says, Where is Abel, your brother? You remember Cain's response? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, I think there is in that statement of Cain's, there is a perfect description of human depravity. That statement speaks volumes about what was really going on in Cain's heart. There is in it, obviously, a disrespect for God. There's also a bald-faced lie, I do not know. Of course he knew. But at its essence, there is also in that statement, am I my brother's keeper, a declaration of independence. I am only responsible for me and nobody else. By the way, the New Testament's answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? The New Testament answers, absolutely you are. And folks, that's true of each of us as well. As I said, look around you. You are your brother's keeper. You are responsible. We are all responsible to each other. In fact, there's an entire genre of New Testament commands that we commonly call the one another's. And that's because the apostles are constantly outlining our responsibility to each other, to other Christians. And they do so by commanding us to be or to do something to one another. In the New Testament, there are about 50 such commands. Most commonly, there is an imperative, a command, followed by the words, one another. But it also takes other forms. Now, among the 50 or so commands, there is a large amount of repetition. So the 50 can be placed into a manageable number of categories or groups. We won't look at every one. I hope, though, to incite you to study them on your own, either, either in your own personal study or with your family. I want to devote our time to just one category of the description of our responsibility to each other, and that's because this particular category overshadows all others in its intensity, in its priority, and even in the frequency with which it occurs. It is the constantly recurring command to love one another. I want us to examine briefly three features of this command to love one another. Let me give you a road map of where we're going. First of all, we'll look at the primacy or priority of loving one another. Secondly, the point of loving one another. And thirdly, the path to loving one another. So let's look at those features together. The first feature, the primacy or priority of loving one another. I don't think we really grasp how important this command really is. Because this virtue, too, runs contrary to the spirit of our society. I'm reminded of the words of Alexis de Tocqueville who wrote, In democratic societies, each citizen is habitually busy with the contemplation of a very petty object, himself. You know, I think because it's inherent to our sinfulness and it is inherent to the culture in which we live, we can easily lose a sense of just how weighty this command really is to God, the command to love one another. But there are a number of ways in the New Testament that it's made clear to us just how important it really is to God. Let me give them to you briefly. 
Number one, we understand the primacy of loving one another because it's the most frequent command in the New Testament in regards to one another. If you were to count, as I had opportunity to do this week, all of those times in the New Testament when we are told to love one another, sometimes with the words one another, other times the spirit of that, you would discover that more than 50 times are we commanded to love other people. By the sheer volume, we should understand just how important this is to the Spirit of God. This was not some passing thought he had. Instead, it was at the core and heart of the commands that are given to us. Number two, we understand the the priority or primacy of loving one another by being told that it is the second greatest command in all of Scripture. It's the second greatest commandment. You see, God has helped set our priorities. Turn with me to Matthew 22, a familiar passage. It's Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus has basically set up camp, as it were, on the temple grounds, taking all the questions that come and answering them, dealing with the issues. In just a couple of days, he's going to draw away privately and spend the rest of the time with his disciples. But in verse 15 of Matthew 22, we're told that the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, and then they pour out these questions. Verse 22, they went away with their tails between their legs because Jesus so powerfully answered their questions. So, verse 23, on that day, some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, and they come asking questions in an effort to trip him up. They also are unsuccessful. So, in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they take another shot. They gather themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So this is an antagonistic question, an antagonistic crowd. And notice what they ask. Teacher, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? Now to really appreciate that question, you have to understand a little bit of the culture of the times. The Pharisees, asking this question, believed there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. One for each Hebrew letter of the Ten Commandments. And so there was a lot of debate and argument among these biblical scholars as to which was the greatest. They had delegated some to be weighty of the 613 and some to be relatively light, but they were constantly debating which was the greatest. And so they were trying to suck Jesus in to this debate. So in response to that kind of antagonistic question, notice how Jesus responds. Verse 37, he said to him, It's easy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says, listen, here it is, the greatest command. Love God with every ounce of your being, your entire life. That's the greatest command. By the way, this command dumps us at the feet of God, begging for mercy and grace, doesn't it? Because not a single one of us has done this. Not a single one of us has met the greatest commandment God has given to us makes us see our need for Christ and for the redemption in him. But then he says, verse 38, this is the great and foremost commandment, or first commandment. Verse 39, the second, you didn't ask, but I'll tell you, the second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Law being the first five books of the Old Testament, prophets being everything else. This was a comprehensive expression for all of God's revelation to that point. He said everything that God has ever said can be summarized in these two basic commands. Love God and love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now in the parallel passage in Luke 10, there's an attempt to sort of scoot out of this command, this uncomfortable situation. And so the question comes, well, okay, uh, who is my neighbor? Jesus goes on, you remember to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. The point of the story, don't miss it, the point of the story is that your neighbor is anybody that God sovereignly brings across your path, whether it's the people who live in your home or the person you run into at the gas station or whatever it may be. The bottom line is any person... God brings into our lives sovereignly through his purpose. We are to love. No exceptions. Next to God, people, Jesus says, must be our priority. So we know it's important because it's the second greatest commandment. We also know it's important because it's a comprehensive summary. Love is a comprehensive summary of every other command. And that's what Jesus, of course, says here in verse 40. On these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. Paul says it as well back in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 verse 8. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. This isn't a prohibition, by the way, against borrowing. The Old Testament allowed it and laid down strict regulations for how it was to be carried out. His point here is, if you're going to be obligated to anybody, then let it be an obligation to love them. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then he mentions four of the commandments regarding other people. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. And if there's any other commandment about our relationship to people, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that a summary? Verse 10. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love someone, you're not going to do those things against them. And so it is a comprehensive summary of every other command. A fourth reason we know that this is a command with great primacy and priority is that without love, every spiritual enterprise is worthless. Without love, every spiritual enterprise is worthless. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, in the first three verses. In verse 1, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He said, listen, if I have the eloquence of men or even of angels, but I don't have love, it's like I'm just a clanging, noisy cymbal. You know what he's saying? He's saying you can speak with the greatest of eloquence, but if you don't have love, nothing you say matters. In verse 2, he says, no ministry or gift matters without love. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, he's talking here of spiritual gifts, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. In verse 3, he says, no personal sacrifice matters without love. He says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, everything 
I sell everything and feed the poor with it, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. By the way, did you catch that you can give everything away and give it to the poor without having love? You can also even give yourself and your life without really genuinely having love. You can do those things for yourself and for your own glory and for your reputation or for your own self-righteous way to somehow satisfy God. But if you do those things without love, it doesn't matter. Another way, a fifth way that we understand the primacy of loving others is because of faith, hope, and love, these this triad of God's gifts, love is the only one that's permanent. It's the only one that lasts. Look at verse 8. Love never fails. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because, folks, someday faith will be sight. Someday hope will be fulfilled. But love will always be our responsibility to God and to others. Finally, we know that love is to be our priority, loving others is to be our priority because it is one clear way that we show our love for God. In 1 John chapter 4, on several different occasions, and you can read, we won't take time to turn there, but verses 20 and 21, John the apostle makes it clear that in loving others, we express the genuineness of our love for God. Folks, do you understand how important this is to God? Take just a moment and think about this. If God could tell you how to simplify your life, you know, sometimes the Christian life is fairly complicated. We have a, a book made up of 66 books. It takes a long time just to read it, much less to grasp all the commands. I love it when things are simplified. Well, Jesus simplified it for us, folks. You want to know what your duty to God is? Here it is. Love God with all your heart and love other people as you love yourself. You want to know how important it is? Next to loving God, loving people is the second greatest duty you have before God. So obviously this is not a small priority to God. It's second on the list. Now let's look at the second feature of this command to love one another. We've seen the primacy of loving one another. Let's look at the point of loving one another. What does this command actually mean? Well, let's start with a definition. The Greek word that almost always occurs with this command to love one another is a very familiar Greek word. If you've been in the church any time at all, it's the word agape. This word is used only of a believer's, a believer's love for man or God or for God's love. So in other words, it's a divine kind of love. The word agape was relatively unknown in the secular Greek language until the Septuagint. Greek had several words for love. Although the word agape existed, it had not really been defined or clarified or informed by common usage. And so it's not surprising that when the translators of the Septuagint, translating the Hebrew Old Testament, wanted to choose a Greek word that they could give meaning to through its use in the Old Testament, they chose this word agape as the word for the Hebrew word for love Ahave. It is a reasoned love. It is not a love based on emotion. Let me, let me clarify that. It's not based on emotion, but it's not void of emotion either. It's a love that is your entire being. 
it's irrespective of the worth or response of the object. It is a self-sacrificial, self-giving love. Here's my definition. This kind of love, agape love, is the unselfish, self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of another regardless of their worthiness of it or their response to it. Let me say that again. It is the unselfish, self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of another regardless of their worthiness of it or their response to it. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The One and Others. Tom will have part two for you next time. And join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.